Hello and welcome to Art Dirt, a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. My name is Brandon Zeck. I'm Christina Reese. And we're talking today about performance art. So why performance art? Why now? Uh, Just a little background. So here in Texas, there's four festival type things that happen mostly in the spring that include performance art or variations thereof. There's the Experimental Action Performance Festival, which is a biennial festival of like raw, young, some young, some old, some aged, some less experienced hardcore performance art. There's the Countercurrent Festival, which is in Houston, put on by the Cynthia Woods Mitchell Center for the Arts, which includes merging lines between performance and performing arts, um, and is maybe a little more academic than Experimental Action. There's the Experimental f- Action is also in Houston. Yes. There's the Fusebox Festival in Austin, uh, mm-hmm. which has been a long running. It's kind of comparable to Countercurrent in a way. Um, it's The scope of its programming is maybe a little larger because it's been going on for a little longer. But mm-hmm. also a lot of kind of blending of performance, performing arts and dance and theater and experimental theater and everything that that means. And then uh, happening for the first year this year, actually, was the Satellite Art Fair, which included a really strong performance art component in Austin, um, organized by Performance is Alive, which we actually recorded a uh, podcast live at Satellite with the curator of that fair and the performance at that fair. And and so the thing is, is that you... Here's my sort of uh, my impression is that you you tend to like performance art. You you go to these festivals. You have a higher how do I put this? You have a higher interest in it and tolerance for it probably than a lot of people I know uh, who mm-hmm. like art. And um, and for the purposes of this conversation, I'll say you know for us the difference between performance art and the performing arts is that you know you don't recreate performance art. It's a thing that it's a time-based thing. that happens in a moment. Um, it, it's, it's about the, the, the time that it is actually taking place. There's no score. There's no choreography to be replicated or recreated by others. Um, can I already go ahead and say that I kind of disagree because the whole basis of fluxus performance art is that there's a score that can be recreated and replicated by others. I think of this because every uh, every New Year's Eve, we publish a news article written in a different way, but saying the same thing about an artist, uh, a Fluxus artist named Ken Friedman. And it's a score called In One Year and Out the Other. And it's about where you know, you call someone in a different time zone. So you're in 2019 and you call someone who's still in 2018 and it's this fun, fluxusy, no bells required performance that anyone can do. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, and before you jumped in, I was going to say, of course, there are exceptions, including for me, a lot of Philip Glass's stuff, uh, the thing that you just named. Um, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, this is a thing that happens. There's often documentation. This is how the work lives on through photographs and ephemera, props. Um, that's the kind of thing that a, a museum or a private collection is likely to collect if they want a piece of this performance. Um, this is what gets documented in books. This is what historians go after. But generally speaking, these are not repeatable. Um, 
Yeah, I think you're thinking about the difference between a score and a script. Mm, I'm just thinking about the artist using the, the exact moment that the thing is happening to as as part of the artwork itself. The audience that is present in that moment, what the artist is doing with themselves, their bodies, their props in that moment, and that is the art. And so mm-hmm. the... the conceptually the idea of bringing that forward and having it be repeatable is that's that's be that's beyond the point or the purpose of the piece itself yeah totally. most of our most of our most memorable pieces of performance art were never meant to be repeated by the artist or anyone else i mean we're not supposed to do Vito Conchi's seedbed again ever and and one of the things that makes these things so some of these performance art pieces so famous or notorious or whatever is there they aren't ever repeated they live on as almost kind of urban legend um you know like chris burden being shot or uh, a lot of chris burden's pieces actually um with or without ephemera to document it so i haven't seen the bullet you know from chris burden's shoot although we have now seen the the lock for the locker piece um but you, so I guess my big question for you is you went and, and really experienced all of these things. You've done it for the last several years. You go to Experimental Action and Fusebox and you were at Satellite. I mean, we, Glass Tire had a presence at Satellite on all the days that it took place and you talked to a lot of the artists. So what are you, you know, on the larger scale, what are you thinking about performance art these days? And second of all, what is performance art's sort of role in Texas or in these various Texas art scenes? I mean, you know, the thing about performance art and the artists that do performance art is I think a lot of them, well, a a lot of them really adopt something that I truly believe in, which is that the medium is like, the medium in which you choose to do your art is half of the battle that your art is trying to say. So there's a reason all of these artists who are doing performance are doing performance because it's an issue that they have to tell in a story, but they don't want to read a paper at a conference, but they don't want to write a play. They don't want to make a painting about it because the painting about whatever they're talking about would not be as effective as whatever they do with their body in space that people can experience. And, you know, I feel this is something that we deal with at Glass Tire and that we as art critics, and I mean really anyone that is actively seeing art can recognize, like if you see a painting and you're like, this shouldn't be a painting, this should be a photograph, or this shouldn't be a charcoal drawing, this should be an oil painting. When medium kind of doesn't match message or isn't the best way to communicate, because, you know, the medium's job is to communicate whatever you're doing. So when there's kind of a disparity there, the art doesn't work and the art's bad at doing its job. That's interesting. Do you do that? Do you, when you're walking through a gallery space and you see a, uh, a work of art that seems to have a, a message that you're, you're gleaning, but it, you feel like the delivery method isn't particularly good, do you think, God, this would really be a lot better as a performance art piece? Occasionally, yes. And this, this isn't oh, wow. something that I... I experience constantly or in every show by any means. But, I mean, especially, it's easiest to think about this when thinking about performance art and when viewing performance art. Because there have been times where I've seen a performance piece and I've been like, okay, this needed to be a paper given at a symposium. This didn't need to be a performance piece. 
Sure, and increasingly that I think is the case as people choose um, performance or docu documented performance, i.e., video for you know social media or whatever, to to say their say, and uh, and we're in a very politicized environment right now, and maybe some of it would be better left to another form, but which kind of brings me to the idea of like. <sighs> Like video, you know, amongst art people, art lovers, art critics, whatever you whatever you want to call all of us who pay attention to this sort of thing, you know, performance art has a weird reputation, sort of like video art. Any time-based stuff that requires a viewer or an audience to sit still and really pay attention for a specific period of time is often the butt of jokes in the art world. Um... There are some good jokes about it, although I'd have to think about that for a second. I should have looked it up before we started. But, you know, being trapped in a at a bad performance art performance is a pretty hellacious thing. Just like if, you, if you're at an opening for video art and you're really expected to sit still and watch it. You know, most people at least can turn around and walk out of the room if it's video. But Well, and that's comparable to being, you know, in the audience of a bad panel discussion or a bad artist oh, yeah. talk or a bad anything where you can't just turn around and leave or if so, you would feel horrible. You know, I feel like one of the reasons that these moments of bad performance or bad video and why these end up as the butt of jokes kind of stick out for us in our minds is because, uh, well, is because I, I'm going to say something that I actually agree with uh, that Jerry Salt said in an interview and that I know we say sometimes around the office, but the percentage of art that's good in Texas is the same as the percentage of art that's really, truly good in New York. And that's the same thing for everywhere. And that percentage is about maybe 10%. And by good, I mean truly amazing transformational art. And that. Oh, I think you're being super, super generous. I'd say it's less than 1%. Yeah. Either way, this, this is a little radical of a view, and I know everyone has different opinions about this. There's also the difference between truly radical in my sense versus your sense of what truly radical is, et cetera, et cetera, personal taste. We're in yeah. a field that's subjective in a way. Yeah. Uh, so all of that acknowledged. I feel the same is true for performance art. But the problem is you can't walk away from a bad performance piece and just go see another real quick like you can walk away from a bad painting in a museum and go see another. Mm -hmm. So this time-based and kind of schedule of performances happening makes it so that people don't have a capacity to deal because it's not worth their time or they don't want to sit through the bad or they can't find the good in the bad or things are just shock value or, you know, all of the, uh, all of the problems that people see in performance, I completely understand and agree. But I think it's also kind of an element of personal capacity. And I yeah, think I have yeah. the capacity. I think what what probably irritates me more than anything when I when I find myself uh, dealing with a performance art piece that's not working is I feel like I'm dealing with an artist or a, you know I'm looking at a piece that hasn't been completely worked out yet, like I'm kind of at their rehearsal, mm -hmm. um, and I I get impatient because I think well you know what this this piece will be good in 
three months or six months or a year or when this person continues to work on it, I'm not happy that I'm being used as a guinea pig as, you know, a test audience. Um, and it bothers me because it feels self-indulgent on their part that, you know, they just think that they have, they're entitled to us as an audience, even if it's not a, a fully cooked idea that's happening less and less however though i think more artists uh are sophisticated and talking to each other and they understand the pitfalls of that i think the same thing happened with video art there was kind of a there was kind of an era of bad video art when video became very very inexpensive cheap or free actually and artists just became incredibly self-indulgent with video and we all sort of dreaded video art for a little while well we've come onto the other side of that now and i think artists are extremely sophisticated about what our attention spans are and how hard it is to get and keep our attention and i feel like performance artists are kind of in the same place i would say i i agree with that i would say that even well, in general, I would say that all art is self-indulgent, mostly. But, you know, in saying that, the things that I think of in a video example is, like, going back to Vito Acconci, the early, like, pour-to-pack videos when video art started to become a thing. And, you know, I know this isn't the era you're talking about of video becoming affordable or free because tapes and pour-to-packs and everything in the, like, 1970s video art world was expensive, but yeah. when these artists were exploring it, it was the most, like, look, I'm on TV, self-indulgent thing. I'm thinking of, um, I think the piece is called Centers by Vito Acconci, where he's just pointing at the center of the lens. And he's, like, looking at a monitor reflecting himself so he can try and keep his finger in the center of the lens. And it's just this most, it's the most kind of funny stereotypical video thing ever and it's all about you being on video and being on tv yeah when the point of the art itself is a sort of indulgence like indulge me i mean warhol did it with you know uh with a lot of his films mm -hmm. let's just let's just point at one thing for hours and hours and and you you can either deal with it or not i mean that was the art because at the time that was a brand new idea let's just make somebody sit still for this thing we're calling art uh and we're gonna put them through the ringer um, I, you know, I don't get that so much from performance. I feel like now the standards are getting higher. More people are doing it. Um, more people are probably feel a little bit freer to walk away from something that's not working. Um, and I would imagine that the artists are aware of that. You know, having said all that, the one thing that I was very sure to make my pilgrimage to, uh, over these last few months was Janine Antoni's, uh, paper dance at, um, the contemporary Austin, because I knew I was going to get an incredibly good performance because she's Janine Antoni, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it did last about an hour. You saw it too, uh, on a different day. Yes. And I thought it, I thought it was really wonderful and I thought it was moving and I thought about it for days afterward. I'm very glad that I saw it. Um, in the hands of a really good artist, performance can be transformative. I mean, really, really a wonderful experience. Name a few Texas artists who you think are doing some really great seasoned performance art. Well, uh, Julia Barbosa Landois uh, is a resident at the Lawndale Art Center right now. Um, and I think uh, she's doing really good performances. She was in the San Antonio art show at the CAM 
she was also in experimental action this past year. Um, Christian Cruz, who's a Dallas-based artist, I wrote about her work kind of where she was subverting performances a little bit and being like the token Latina artist in the 2017 uh, Experimental Action Festival. Not that she was the token Latina artist, but she was subverting the fact that it she could have been perceived as such or her performance could have been perceived as such, such uh, with like humorous quips and um, like acting as a pinata. Evan McCarley has been an artist that I followed for quite a while. Houston has these kind of semi-monthly performance art nights at the bar and performance space Natsuo. Um, so mm-hmm. I followed Evan for quite a little while. Jim Pertle, who owns Natsuo, has been a longtime performance artist that we've written about on the site. Um, Julia Claire Wallace is kind of the mm-hmm. foundational organizer of performance art in Houston um, in a way. And she was part of or organized a group back in like 2009 called Sexy Attack that has these amazing, hilarious videos uh, where a bunch of people got together and dressed up in like workout clothes and did dances in the most inappropriate places like Hard Rock Cafe, Kroger, the MFAH, Ikea. This group kind of verged on flash mob a little bit. In thinking about our conversation, I was looking up when the origins of flash mobs actually kind of went back to, and it was only 2003. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing, Improv Everywhere goes back to 2001. So these kind of group performancey type things are young. And I think people are still trying to figure out what is and what isn't doable, but then some people don't care. Like, I think no one would care if you called sexy attack performance or not. It was just about going into the world and making an experience for people that was kind of unsettling a little bit. How documented were these performances? Is this, does this work live on as video that we can all watch? Cause I want to, I have a point about this. They live on as YouTube videos. Yeah. And it's interesting to, to think about the way artists, especially artists who are, who are doing performance work, um, choose now to document their work or not. Um, if I was thinking about, you're talking about flash mobs or them showing up at a hard rock cafe to do an inappropriate dance. I was thinking about the artist, Christine, the musician mm-hmm. artist, uh, personality, Christine, and who's based in Austin. Although I think she's been in New York a lot lately. Um, you know, going to a place like a grocery store, uh, with this persona going and basically shooting a music video. I mean, the, the people who are, who are in the store are obviously responding to this outsized crazy happening inside the store. It's like a flash mob. It all gets recorded as a music video. It goes out as a music video. I kind of, I think that one of the reasons we think this golden age of performance art was in the seventies is because we can't really see it. Yes. <laughs> you know, it just it wasn't recorded in the same way. We have to read about it, we have to look at photographs of it, and we can get really romantic about that sort of thing. Um, the per, the show at uh, the Modern in Fort Worth right now is called Disappearing and it's um, it's three artists who were working living and working in Southern California in the 70s and Chris Burden's one of them, one of the three. But what they have 
the first three to four rooms is a lot of documentation and ephemera from all these various kinds of performances that they did or these kinds of happenings, these actions that they did one time only. There's a lot, there is the lock from the locker piece that Chris Burden did in, I think, 1971 um, at Irvine. And then there's the ski mask from his piece, uh, You'll Never See My Face in Kansas City. I've never seen these things, but I've read about these performances and seen documentation of these performances forever. So for me, seeing these objects was super exciting. It was like... It was like seeing John Lennon's, you know, Rickenbacker from their appearance on the Beatles appearance on Ed Sullivan in 1965. It was like, oh, I got goosebumps and all this, you know, but. But that's um, the only time that that would work. Yes. It's the only time because these because these performances are historic and they're in our 101 art history books. Yeah, exactly. And it's nice to have them there. I mean, it's a it's nice to have this this spectrum of different sorts of art that make it into that part of your brain that uh that is formative, you know, in terms of your understanding of art. One thing that I thought was really fun, you and I were driving into the valley. We took our valley trip, and as we were driving out of Houston, you were recounting for me a lot of the performances that you had just seen at Experimental Action. And it really was like you were telling me stories of, you know, these events. I mean, they had become sort of events. And the way you told me about each performance was like you were telling me about a whole life experience, you know. <laughs> it was um, for better and for worse, the ones that sounded really good and the ones that sounded like they weren't weren't so good. Um there's almost a value in even that, in sitting through a piece of performance art that doesn't work. You can sort of, even if you're not an artist, you can take away with you some sort of lesson about what not to do. I completely agree. And I think one of the really good things about the performance art community is that, at least in Houston or in Austin or the communities that I've been a part of and been fortunate to kind of be accepted into, they are very accepting and very open and very into helping one another make their performances the best that they can be. And I think that has to do with going back to the medium as the message that has to go back to the fact that everyone that's doing performance art, at least, you know, even the performances that don't work, everyone is doing it for a reason. And mostly it's storytelling a story that they couldn't tell otherwise or that would be difficult to tell otherwise. So because of that, everyone's very sensitive and receptive to one another and really into trying to make each other's things work. That makes it much more of a sort of interactive community than, say, painters <laughs> or some other, you know, sculptors. I'm not saying that the, that artists who are sculptors or painters don't ever get together or talk or don't have an, an active community, but it does sound like the performance art people have a more communal community. Well, and it's for good reason. Like, we agree that performance art and theater are different, but they're similar in that you can't have a dress rehearsal and not invite anyone and not hear mm -hmm. the crowd and see the reactions and wait for the laughs to make sure your timing is right. And similarly, I think rehearsing a performance alone in your studio, while it can be beneficial, having even one person as an audience makes you more self-aware than you would be otherwise. So you have to have interaction. And it's a little, maybe a little more deep of an interaction than saying to someone, hey, come in my studio and tell me your thoughts about this painting. I know there are painters that would disagree. 
you know, I, I think about the monetizing of art and how performance art and video also, uh, not just being the time-based things that kind of can be treated like the bastard stepchild of the art world, but there's no money in it. Um, there's almost no way to collect performance art other than, again, the props or ephemera. You know, how many of these artists are making other kinds of things that are that are commercially viable, that are saleable? Well, of, I mean, of the local people in Texas or in Houston, I would say very few. Well, that's what I think. Yeah, the thing about the performance art scene in Houston, uh, and I think I talked a little bit about this in the Satellite podcast uh, that I did with Quinn Dukes and Julia Claire Wallace, but the thing about the performance art scene in Houston is that it kind of tends to be a weird segment of the art scene or in some cases, a different art scene altogether. And there isn't a ton of crossover, uh, maybe because of capacity, maybe because people have their likes and dislikes, maybe because people going to shows at galleries don't want to be at Natsuo until 12 a.m. You know, there's all these different reasons. But the artists within that scene are doing performance not because they're making money or getting paid, but because they need to do performance. How much do you think shock uh plays into because there's not i mean there's not much artists can do that hasn't been done before in terms of like pushing boundaries or envelopes after you know bastian otter actually did disappear and die doing a performance artwork or somebody like chris burden has himself crucified to the top of a volkswagen or uh lee lozano does something called a dropout piece where she truly just drops out of life yeah, there's nowhere to go from there but down. Yeah, I mean, so you can't necessarily... Are you seeing very many artists uh, exploring ways of getting or keeping people's attention by shocking or disturbing or upsetting or confusing them? There are a few artists that kind of tend to use that in their repertoire, some more successfully than others. I can kind of expect whenever I go to a performance art event my kind of safe assumption is that there's going to be at least one performance that's going to totally be worth it and totally be the reason for sitting through everything else. There's going to be some things that are okay, but maybe a little still more workshoppy, like you were talking about earlier, but that's fine because some of these smaller events, that's kind of what they're for. And then there's going to be one shock piece. And Sometimes it'll be successful, but a lot of times it won't be super successful because it is just a very basic shock value and nothing else. You know, there's a difference between shock value that does have depth to it and shock value that doesn't have depth to it. And it's kind of Mm -hmm. a weird, I know it when I see it kind of line. Uh, Oh, yeah. You know, it's almost, I mean, in that way, it is comparable to looking at a painting of like, this is surface level, or this is kind of has something more deeper going on. But I kind of tend to gravitate towards performances that are maybe a little more subtle in their message. And subtlety can be in, I think, any kind of performance. It can be in a performance that has shock value. It can be shock value plus subtlety. Like the message Mm -hmm. is subtly communicated while the kind of performance might itself be over the top. I think subtlety can be in durational performances, which is something we haven't even talked about, which, you know, performances that repeat themselves over two hours or longer, I think sometimes are some of the best performances because you can drop in on them and not have to 
kind of watch a whole thing and know what's going on. When you can drop into a performance or a video artwork, I actually wrote about some videos like this too by David Pollitzer and Bradley Brown. Um, I think the drop-in quality is really powerful if it kind of has a strong drop-in quality that makes you watch the cycle of it, you know, because a lot of durational performances have some sort of cycle to them. Yeah, they do. I think endurance is still a somehow a, a very valid uh, type of for performance as well. There's something evergreen about, and sort of shocking for that matter, about somebody who's willing to put themselves through something quite uh, ugh, rigorous <laughs> at their own expense and uh, for the point of our sort of getting something or some sort of entertainment. Part of it is that we're also a little desensitized in the art world. Like nudity at this point in a performance is kind of like, yeah, yeah, there's a naked person in front of me. That's fine. But I went to a performance night with some friends who are not art people. And all of a sudden there was a naked man standing in front of us and they were like, ah, there's a naked person. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is performance art. Did you? Oh, I mm -hmm. guess you didn't know. You know, so some of those things are still shocking in a way for people that aren't us. And it kind of gets lost on an audience that's familiar. Right, right. There's also this sense that certain things, once they've been done, there's no reason to do them again, uh, either because the times have changed drastically and so that thing just doesn't have the same currency that it would have, or it would actually be dangerous to repeat it. Um, I was thinking about Marina Abramovich's piece called Rhythm Zero, which was 1974, where she laid, like, I think she stood still for six hours and allowed people to do whatever they wanted to her using one of 75 things that she laid out on a table. Mm-hmm. And whatever you think of her or, her or her performance art or her, you know, the things that she's done over the last 10 years or so, this was a strong piece. And it, and it didn't go that well for her in 74. It did exactly what it was supposed to. But of course, people did. They did harm her. She had hammers and saws and blades and as well as nice things on the table. I saw the table with all its tools laid out at the Tate a few years ago. And though I had read about that piece and seen some footage or some photographs, excuse me, some stills from that piece, I had never seen the table with all the tools laid out. And it was a really powerful piece just as a table with tools laid out. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would, and one of the tools was a, go, a loaded gun. And in fact, the way that that performance ended was somebody put the loaded gun to her head and then somebody disputed that and it turned into a little bit of a fight and then the thing was over after six hours. But... I, would, I wouldn't recommend that a, any artist do that now. <laughs> I just think it's a bad idea. Not because it's a bad idea, but because it's, it seems incredibly dangerous to me. Why is it more dangerous now than it was back then? You know, she did it in Naples, which actually kind of changes things as well. Because I think if a woman put 75, you know, potentially aggressive or very aggressive tools on a table and asked people to do whatever they wanted to to her for six hours, I just think... I even think that with things like social media and the way things are inflamed these days, it would be very dangerous for her to do that. I just think the kind of people who would end up showing up and exploiting that might be not the audience that... So you think basically that like the promotion of it as such would bring out the worst people? I wonder. I wonder. 
I, I don't know. I mean, in some ways, this is a little bit off topic, but it's not. It is and it isn't. I mean, something that could have taken place. Also, we're just talking about liability, um, lawsuits, uh, you know, all, all kinds of things. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that an artist could get away with doing certain things in public now that they may have done once upon a time. And actually, I was thinking about uh, very recently, there's a SMU grad named Xavier Carter who wanted to do a thesis that had to do that. He was going to, I think, cut himself um, live as part of his SMU thesis. And SMU said, we're not going to have you do that. You can't bloodlet yourself in front of, a, you know, on campus. It's just not going to happen. I mean, we're, we're, we have much more sort of a nanny state thing going on throughout. There's a lot more regulation of, of all behavior going on now than there was in the 70s. Yeah, well, the issues of liability and censorship, you know, I mean, experimental action has you sign a waiver before you go into the venue. So Before you even go into watch. Yes, part of the policy of the festival is also that you have control over your own body and you no performer can do anything without consent. And of course, that's explained to the performers and everything. So there's no sort of forced interaction. But performers have their own way of kind of, I don't want to say coercing, because that has a really strong negative connotation. But, you know, when you're viewing a performance, and you kind of get wrapped up in a performance, you become a part of it as an audience member. Oh, it's that's very key. Yeah. And then you might end up performing with them in a way that you didn't expect or, you know, if you looked at it from the outside, you might be like, oh, I wasn't expecting to do that. I actually really, really don't like that aspect of going to see performance art. I never, I never want to participate. Maybe that's a generational thing. I don't know. Have you been pulled into a performance? I have been pulled into performances. Um I tend to want to sit back and watch what happens from the outside. This is, this is something kind of comparable, uh, non grata which i know you know non grata but for listeners mm -hmm. non grata is an estonian performance collective they perform multiple times in houston their performances are wild it involves chainsaws sawing phone books in half people setting each other on fire um mm -hmm. people shouting on bullhorns it's it's a very kind of chaotic almost protest like scene and I mean, mm -hmm. part of their performance is pulling audience members in and like putting like a bag over their head or putting them into situations that are almost hostage. Like, of course, I was in a performance and someone tried to grab me and I shook my head no and they let go. Like part of this community, again, being responsiveness and being part of storytelling is that everyone respects whatever you feel and you're, if you want to participate or not. But there is a little bit of a social pressure to participate if you kind of get pulled or, you know, it's like you're the chosen one to become part of this performance. It's funny. Yeah, they've got a lot of kind of Viennese actionism, sort of aggression going on, kind of anarchy. And I remember being really relieved once I was watching a non grata performance in Austin. It was at the Museum of Human Achievement. It was outdoors and they were using the big that big cage contraption, that big flatbed truck that's got the cage uh, thing on it that Museum of Human Achievement uses for pieces. But so all these Estonian performance artists are out there with their blow torches and their chainsaws and their stuff. And I guess the lead guy, I can't remember his name, he wanted it documented. And I was standing not at the front 
And he, so I don't know how he did this. He came over and he found me and he handed me his camera. And so... Which, side note, I, worst person to hand your camera. Yeah, so I'm the wor- world's worst photographer. That is 100% true. Me and Neil Farso are the world's worst photographers. We both work for Glass Tire. Um, yeah, but I was relieved because it gave me a job to do. And I knew that that was probably going to be about the extent of it. Um <laughs> That nothing else was going to happen where I was going to get pulled into some sort of action that I was like, Ugh. that was something I still feel like those guys aren't, you know, they're still, they're, they're doing what they're doing and that's, but still I feel like there's a safety, there's some sort of safety mechanism built into these things. Maybe not for them, but for anyone that they might pull into the action. I can't imagine that there's, that anyone has been really hurt. I could be really wrong about that. I feel like the general thing of what you're saying is correct in that performance artists will put themselves on the line but I mean most of the performance that I've seen if not all of them uh, have the wherewithal to make sure that it is only themselves maybe it doesn't feel like it but it actually is <laughs> yeah and if they can if they can get the feeling going that maybe things are about to really go off the rails that's uh that's something it's exciting but it's rare yeah and I think non grata does it most of the time. That's kind of their. That's kind of what they trade in. Well, what? Uh, so there are more performance art uh, festivals now. I mean, I'm not even sure there were any performance art festivals prior to what uh, twenty years ago, probably. Probably not in Texas. Definitely. Not certainly or, not in Texas. There were performance festivals, but they weren't performance festivals. It was like people performing during the art car parade in Houston. Or these kind of more subtle things that have less of a specific mission. Or New Music America, which came through Houston, which wasn't a performance festival per se, but it did have people like Pauline Oliveros and John Cage and, you know, was a little Mm. more music focused. Well, the crossover between conceptual art and performance art is, uh, I mean, they're, they are so intertwined. You know, if you look at even the art guys, uh, you could, you could really... Uh, categorize a good number of what they've done as basically performance art pieces. Oh yeah, they are performance artists in addition to everything else they do. See, I think that they're conceptual artists who do performance, but you think of them as performance artists. I don't think of the label necessarily. I, you know, I've, mm. I've talked to people about this and I don't think people should be labeled as, you know, I'm a sculptor, I'm a painter, I'm a whatever. You're an artist, you make stuff. Again, this goes back to like, if you're a performance artist, does that mean everything you do is performance? Because I hope not, because performance isn't going to be the best medium for everything you want to do. Well, there may be some artists who that really is the only thing that they want to do. I totally agree with you about labels. I mean, uh, I bring it up because a performance art festival is such a specific thing. That is very true. However, there have been times that I've seen non-quote-quote performance artists be pulled into doing performance art or quote-quote performance art. I, I curated an exhibition on Performance Art Houston's Instagram, I don't know, maybe two years now, and I tried to pull in people who uh, some of them were performance artists as you would classify them as such, and then some of them weren't and just kind of had a performative way of moving through the world. Again, that's something that worked on social media and kind of video documentation, but these aren't people that I would necessarily ask to come and play 
a performance art festival. It's funny. I mean, that brings us back to the whole thing about things being documented and everything being documented now and the likelihood that any performance uh, art piece will be documented and the possibility that the artist is so aware of that that the way they engineer it or stage it is such that it works for being documented. You know, when you say that you curated this Instagram thing, and I loved that Instagram project. I thought it was just, I think it's great. This performance art Houston Instagram. But I mean, those, those works are made to be documented and put out on social media, which I think makes them, I mean, I don't know if I would say that that just makes it very contemporary performance art. That's what we expect. That's what we have. Or if I would say that was actually a kind of a form of, video art or internet art or social media art again the labels start to really fail us at this point yeah i completely agree it's kind of like i mean you know ryan Treycarton's video works that you can view on youtube are very clearly video art but they're yeah performative yeah but there's not an audience there it's not it's not shot in front of a live studio audience who's you know experiencing it as it's unfolding that stuff is staged for video that can exactly be said for the performance art houston instagram show that i did at least yeah and i think that's maybe one of the reasons i like it so much is because for me it plays more like video art i'm a huge fan of video art by the way i have i have a lot of i have a lot of tolerance and patience for video art in a way that i haven't necessarily for performance art you may be the opposite But I do, I mean, one way I am enjoying performance art much more in recent years has been through its documentation. It's much more common documentation um, so that I can see these things, even if I missed them the first time. And I can see it in the comfort of my own home. (laughs) So as performance art and festivals for it and multi-day events for it proliferate in Texas, we've got, it sounds to me like we've got some strong stuff happening in Houston and in Austin. Dallas hasn't quite caught up. It's had a few stabs at this sort of thing that have not uh, been repeated. And San Antonio doesn't have a festival. Yeah, San Antonio doesn't have a festival, but they do have performance artists. Oh, of course. And Dallas has performance artists. And he's, I mean, it seems to me like every region in Texas has some performance artists, but... um, yeah, the festivals are an interesting thing. And, of course, they bring in artists from other parts of uh, the country and other parts of the world. But it seems to me like it's a very popular, proliferating thing. And it's likely to continue in that direction. And we're going to see probably more of it rather than less in the coming years. Well, and, you know, part of that is institution led not that like experimental action or you know these performance art nights that are happening in houston not that they necessarily gain a ton of benefit from a place like the cam doing performance shows but the fact that the cam the contemporary arts museum houston has been doing shows that have included performance you know way back in its history and places like the contemporary austin doing shows that include performance like the janine antoni show uh the box company in dallas doing the dallas biennial 16 with herman nietzsche and Teresa margolis you know herman's mm-hmm. stuff being more performative if kind of performance art receives these institutional pieces of attention then it it might go towards educating the larger art community that isn't super in tune with the performance community and that could 
cause mm. some crossover that could expand the performance community. I agree. It seems to me like Houston still is, if we're going to like name, I don't, I don't yeah, maybe we shouldn't do this, but if we were going to name a sort of, a sort of, um, performance art capital of Texas. Yeah. I mean, and part of it is just its legacy. The fact that the performance art stuff was happening in Houston in us with more presence earlier than it was in the other cities. It has to do with the legacy, but it also really has to do with these artists on the ground making an effort to do performance art nights and invite people and kind of form this community for themselves. And I think there's a kind of critical mass of performance artists in Houston, so it might be a little easier for the community to do that and find leaders that make the community important. But at the same time, that's no easy feat, so... Big kudos to everyone in Houston who is part of Performance Art Houston, who has organized experimental action and really made Houston the performance art capital of Texas, if that's what we want to designate it as. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, with that, um, what is the next performance art thing you're going to experience? Do you know? The next performance (laughs) art thing. I know there is uh, a performance art night happening in June I believe. So if you're in Houston, I think it's at Natsuo. That's Houston spelled backwards on Main Street downtown. It's a bar. It's a performance venue. It's a social sculpture. Uh, I might try and go to that. What about you? Is there any performance art or performative thing that you're looking into right now? In my immediate future? Uh, yeah, actually, weirdly, I'm going to be calling a guy named Hayden Pedigo on the phone in a little bit. He is a kid who is a musician. I call him a kid. He's young. He's 24, 25. But he's made these videos. To me, the whole thing feels like a pretty um, long-term performance art piece. And I don't know if that's how he's couching it or not. I will ask him. It's got a lot of Harmony Kareen sort of undertones to it. The way it has... Um, unfolded thus far it feels much more like a long performance art piece rather than uh i don't know i don't i don't even know what else it it would be Uh, performance art civic engagement it goes hand in hand (laughs) it's not the first of this kind of thing that's happened but i am certain it's the first of this kind of thing that's happened in amarillo (laughs) yeah alex jones said that he was a performance artist but that's a whole other conversation Oh, right. That is a whole other conversation. There's a, yes. Anyway, before we even have time to think about getting into that, thanks for listening and go perform some art. Or go see someone performing art. 